You're listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBT plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Emily and talking about adopting an autistic child. That'll be followed by questions from our audience. Hi Emily, thank you so much for joining me today um, on the podcast. I know that you've joined us today because you are in the process of adopting a child who's autistic and um, I know that you'd got in touch really because you wanted to share some of the joys and challenges of that and so it's really pertinent because we know at the moment that there are lots of children waiting for adoption who have got additional needs. So I wonder if you could maybe take us back to the start of your journey and just tell us how you got to this point if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. So when we first started, we were quite open to an age of child. So anything from sort of naught to six. And we were open to additional needs for a child, but we didn't know what that would look like. And so for those of you that have sort of gone through stage two, you have to sort of start narrowing it down and having a real think, which can be quite challenging, I think, about what would you consider? What would you not consider? And so we kind of did that thinking. But really, when we met us, when we saw our son's profile, it was just his smile that just the second we saw it, we just knew really that, that this little boy and we hadn't read anything else about him at that point was just really uh, it just really shook, took us really at that point. Did you know much about autism already? Did you have like personal experience, professional experience or anything? I did have professional experience. I work in mental health. So I've worked with adults with autism. So I did, yes, I wasn't put off by it because I did have some awareness of it. And I think that was helpful. But I think also there is quite a lot of good information, actually, that you can find now around what it's like to have a child with autism. And I think that's also you know you can find that on online I think and that can be really helpful just to understand a bit more because it can be really scary I think people think of autism as you know somebody perhaps who's non-verbal who's very challenging and actually there's such a massive spectrum that it's you know if you if you start to meet you they say don't they when you've met one person with autism you've met one person with autism so very different yeah, it's funny you say that. It's the second time in a week that I've heard that phrase and I hadn't heard it before. But yeah, there is a lot more visibility, I think, now. I think particularly with social media, where people are talking about neurodivergence much more and their own experience of that. So I guess there are a lot more positive stories out there because going back a bit, I don't think it had that visibility. And I think you're right that everyone thought of autism and thought of, you know, people who are very profoundly affected in lots of different ways and much less so perhaps about people who are autistic but also who are living independently, working with friends, with family, with partners and so on. I don't think that view of it was so visible. Absolutely and I think social media has actually had a really big part to play in that. I do follow um, on Instagram and Facebook, mostly Instagram, some really amazing young people and adults who are so empowered by their autism and you know they they talk about the struggles they have but they absolutely own it and and are proud of being autistic and that's really what we're trying to teach our son really from now from an early age of that he is autistic but that and he will struggle with some things but absolutely he can he can thrive with the right support and and getting the help that he needs and and hopefully he will he'll grow up to be proud rather than to be you know to be embarrassed or ashamed about it yeah, absolutely, because that does seem to be how some of that dialogue now is is framed, is in that sense of, you know, being proud of who people are. And, and that language shift as well from person with autism to autistic person yeah. has come from the autistic community. And it it feels 
it feels I, I, I'm an outsider I don't you know I'm not autistic but just sort of seeing that particularly on social media the growth of that community and the visibility of that community and that community saying this is who we are this is how you should talk about us this is what you should be thinking and yeah it just feels very dynamic at the moment absolutely yeah I hope he'll I hope he will one day be able to be a part of that but we'll see we'll see it's very early days of course yes so was your son already diagnosed or was it simply suspected at that stage that he might have autism he was already diagnosed I think he was diagnosed at around four so so he's been in the foster care system around that time um but when he was in school he was still with birth family and he was diagnosed around that time Okay, because um, for some people who adopt, the fact their child's autistic is something that becomes apparent later, or perhaps some of the traits were apparent, but the diagnosis was not in place at the time. So I guess you came to this with that information. But of course, because it's such a spectrum, that diagnosis really only gives you the tiniest of clues as to what that might mean. I wonder, how did you go about figuring out just from a label whether or not you might be able to cope with what his needs might be how did you make that judgment well we spoke to the foster carer and we spoke to his social worker we read the report which is really detailed we spoke to his school and everybody just when they talk about our son they just smile he's such a funny character like he'll just go and meet someone do a little dance for them or tell them something about one of his favorite special interests and everybody we met just absolutely adored him and it, it was such a it was such an easy decision really when you start to get to know more about him. You know, for him, his anxiety is probably one of his most difficult things. He's but but obviously he's also come from an adopted background, which is going to enhance that as well. So so for him, some of his challenges around how to help him feel less worried. We are very open, I guess, in terms of things like he does a lot of stimming, but we, we don't mind that and, and we encourage him to stim because it's such a big part of him. So so really the, the conversations that we had were really important for us to get to know him as a little personality. And some of the more challenging things, so like his anxiety or the fact that he does really struggle to get to sleep, we've been able to work with him. And, and really, he's changed so much, even in the time that we've known him, that you get a sense of a child. But actually, when they're home in their forever home and they start to settle, they change anyway, I think. And he certainly has over the time. And because you were saying that, you know, when you first saw his picture, you sort of fell in love or, you know, fell in sort of hopeful love yeah, or whatever yeah. that first feeling yeah. is called I guess do you think almost I don't know sometimes I guess in the process because it's we're quite discouraged from investing in the dream you know as part of the process it becomes very very fact-based very information-based very head-based and it sounds like you really fell in love with your heart you know and I just wonder could you have been put off at that stage? You know, were you, how how easily did that information gathering stage go in the sense that you'd already kind of caught feelings? There was a point when I had a doubt, to be honest, because he was also an older child. And, you know, when you when you go through that process and, they, and the social worker talks to you about imagine your child, we did imagine having a younger child. We didn't know what that, because we were so open to additional need, we didn't really know what that would look like. But there was a point when I had a wobble and it was more about his age. 
and there's a there's another great podcast who is a same-sex couple who have who adopted an older child and I actually reached out to him and he was fantastic in saying you know because I was thinking oh, all the things we will have missed out on you know all the things we won't be able to do and he was like listen the only thing I miss, missed out on was not changing the nappies and I don't regret that and it just really helped so I would really encourage people who are maybe thinking well I might be able to to consider some additional needs um, I might be able to consider an older child to really just talk to other adopters um, I'm really open to people reaching out to me some people have said you know I can see you've adopted a child with additional needs can I ask you about it and I think a lot of adopters are willing to have those open discussions and that really has helped me in speaking to other adopters because it kind of demystifies it a little bit and reduces the fear element as well yeah I understand that completely because all that you get really is the labels and mm. some of those labels come without any nuance and some of them do feel really scary because unless you have specialist knowledge of any particular need all you get is that label and all you've got about that label is what you've learned largely from the media and stuff and so as you're opening these profiles you know I remember seeing things that were kind of big label items if you like you know so uh, big diagnoses and big um, I don't know sort of named disabilities and things like that and you've got so little information to draw on. And sometimes it, it's perhaps easier now because social media is so much more apparent. But we adopted our son nine years ago. And of course, it was there, but it wasn't there like it is right now. And so you kind of order a book on the subject and kind of think, well, I don't know. I don't really know what this means. It was just much harder to find that information. I think it is difficult, isn't it? And that would be something that would be really good for adoption agencies to do a little bit more. And I think and and local authorities when there is a diagnosis. I mean, we were looking at profiles of children with chromosome disorders that we'd never heard of. And and like you say, you get this label and you don't know what that means for a child's life, their expect you know the expected outcomes in life. And and really, I think that would really help if people understood a bit more because lots of these children can live a life that is you know really full and enriched and it just brings so much joy to the parents or parent and actually you don't realize that because you're so busy thinking well what does this mean and how will this impact us so it would be so good to see more of that I think I think that would help adopters as well to make those some of those decisions ease more easier yeah I think that as well it um we were asked questions like I don't know, like a diagnosis would be named. So one that I remember specifically uh, was bipolar. And so one of the questions we were asked is, would you consider a child where one parent had bipolar, one of the birth parents? And then the next question was, would you consider a child where both parents had bipolar? And so straight away, we're thinking, okay, that clearly makes a big difference then. So suddenly you're attempting to do research on the prevalence of bipolar in children where A, one parent, and then B, two parents have got bipolar and if so what might that mean for the child and so on and because there's a list of what 30 40 items yeah. you can't be a specialist researcher in all of them and I think you're right that the temptation then is to just say no because you don't have enough information and it's not necessarily easy or realistic in terms of time to go and do that research in that way do you think if you hadn't had that professional experience you might have had a narrow enough view that you would have said no possibly yeah I think having you know I've grown up and my wife has grown up around people who've had mental health issues learning disabilities and we were also shared life carers before that which is where you provide respite care for adults with uh, mental health issues or learning disabilities and we'd only done two or three stays but that we were we had been around people who had 
that kind of um, diagnosis or or condition and we had seen sort of just how I can't explain really how it gives you a different outlook on life life becomes more about the simple joys and and it's just just when we did that it made us realize actually how much we appreciate life more and so actually it's had having our son has had a massive impact but even doing that kind of opened our world and so again I think if people are thinking well could I couldn't I spending some time maybe um you know looking at whether you can do some volunteering with with specialist groups or or speaking to parents I think it can make a difference because it takes away the fear element that unknown element of what would this be like I think that that definitely has helped yeah, I can understand that completely. Um, on the last series of the podcast, we interviewed two adopters who were autistic themselves. And again, we're going through the process um, as adopters and to become carers and stuff. And again, it it just it's a reminder of that massive spectrum of what being autistic is, because, again, going back to that sort of stereotype and that very narrowly portrayed view of things, it just isn't like that. It's just so much more broad than that. And it was nice to see people on both sides of the fence, if you like, rather than, you know, children who are autistic who need homes and of which there are lots, but also autistic adults saying, I can make an amazing adopter. And one of the things that I will draw on is the fact that I'm autistic. Absolutely. And again, there's a fantastic Instagram um, account by two dads, one of whom is autistic and is an amazing adopter and an amazing example of how you can be autistic and be a parent and have a job and have a life. And I think I do think, like we said, those stereotypes are still there and we see it. You know, people see our son. He's bouncing around. He's making some noise sometimes when he's super excited or super anxious and people make judgments about him and they're wrong. And actually, then they're really surprised when he comes up and says something about one of his special interests or he tells them about the Romans as his favourite thing at the moment. And they're like, wow, this 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 little boy is incredibly intelligent, but they've made an assumption based on how he presents. And, and actually that's great because it challenges their, their, their um, stereotypes all the time. And, and it's actually quite fun to watch sometimes. So if you, you do have to develop a thick skin, I think, as an adopter, no matter what your child is like, because, you know, all of our children have trauma, don't they? And they all that all presents in different ways. But he is, yeah, he's such a, that, that little character comes out all the time, really. Do you find that the trauma combined with the fact that your son's autistic creates additional complexity? And I think I'm also wondering sometimes when a problem has cropped up for us at various points you can wonder which of the things it's related to and therefore which response to give and I wonder how you're able to sort of cope with the nuances of this might be a trauma response this might be an autistic response this therefore requires this response this requires that how are you coping with all of that absolutely it's it's sometimes hard to know what's normal child behavior because we don't have any birth children we've we've got family young children in our family but it's that is this a normal child response is this an autism response or is this a trauma response and sometimes it's not clear to unpick them to be honest and so we just meet the need as it is we do therapeutically parent and that seems to be having made a massive difference even in the short time that we have had our son that kind of nurturing response, the empathy, the playfulness massively works with him. He he loves playful parenting. And that has been one of the things I think that's been the biggest difference that I've seen. I, you know, I do try and turn everything into a game or make everything playful. And I think that reduces the anxiety and the fear for him. 
so yeah it, sometimes you can't pick it out so for example at night he he sometimes is hyper vigilant which i think is trauma and sometimes he can't sleep which is really common in autistic children because they don't have enough melatonin and so you can't quite work it out you just have to meet that need i think where it is then yeah i can understand that completely it's um it it can be quite difficult and you know for us at points professionals kind of giving a framework for this is what trauma looks like this is what whatever looks like can be really helpful but then when you overlay those two things together there is much more complexity to things and yeah I I know what you mean about sort of trying to stay in the moment and resolve things one at a time rather than having a grand master plan you know yeah absolutely and someone said to me the other day don't worry about what the future looks like because no one knows you know I've, I've I think one of the things that's been helpful to me is having people who have autistic children who have been there and can say this is this is normal to feel this way or it's normal you know it's normal that this happens and you get that validation and that's really helpful I think to find people who've got children who maybe have a similar um, condition. So if you're considering a child with additional needs, looking at support groups um, for that particular need, because it's so different, um, again, to maybe to adopting a child that's neurotypical. So then you have two different responses, if that makes sense. So I think surrounding yourself with people who get it can be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's really useful. Just in adoption generally is other people who get it, who get what trauma looks like, who get even if the child doesn't have major sort of diagnosable trauma symptoms, they've all had that difficult start, haven't they? They're all going to show it in one way or another. And you're right that sometimes it is just parenting stuff. Sometimes it's just child stuff. And sometimes it's overlaid with these other things and trying to understand all of that complexity can be quite difficult but if you're around people who are doing it too they sort of instinctively understand that you're not quite having to explain or or even intellectualize it in quite the same way you just meet your child's needs over and over again you know absolutely yeah it's funny isn't it like you just get used to that don't you I think um you just get used to that's your life now and I think (laughs) other people like wow you you do what you know you have all this and I'm like this is just my life you know I love it yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, you know, all kids have got needs in one way or another, haven't they? So, you know, you're going to be doing you're going to be doing a lot of need meeting, no matter which child it is. But there's just, I guess, this additional element that you need to understand more and attempt to meet that child where they are, I guess, in a different way. Yeah. And I think the thing is, sometimes because we're, we're so focused in adoption, aren't we, of what child might you consider? We forget that actually someone who has a birth child has no idea what's going to happen to their birth child. They don't get a choice of whether it's a boy or a girl. They don't see what that child looks like before it's born. They don't get a list of diagnoses. So actually, although, you know, we know when we adopt that there is going to be some traumas that we have to take on and that is different. We, no one knows the certain their future you know um so it's just meeting just being in the moment I think what really helps me actually is mindfulness so I have had mental health issues before and I I kind of came to mindfulness about seven or eight years ago to help that which it has massively but that also really helps in parenting because I just stay where I am sometimes I worry off what's it going to be like for him how you know what's his future going to be like because we don't know yet there's so much uncertainty because he's absolutely galloping on in development now but we don't know what that is going to be like will he go to a mainstream secondary school he's in mainstream primary and he's he's been well supported but he may not be able to go to mainstream secondary he may be able to get employed he says he's having 10 kids 
um, at the wow. moment. So yeah, yeah, and he's going to have a day job and a night job. So he's got plans, but you know, we don't know how easy that will be for him. But it's about just being in that moment when he's like, he decided he what he told me to buy some cheap toilet roll this weekend so he could dress up as a mummy. So like that's so we've had to dress him up as a mummy. Um, and just so many fun things and it's just being in that moment and enjoying that rather than kind of thinking oh I've got that professional to deal with or what's that going to be like in a year's time that really helps as well I think yeah I can understand that completely so with your history of mental health issues did you how did you find the assessment process did that come up as a strength as a barrier how did you experience that in the process it came up at every step of the way and I had to kind of I was we had a fantastic social work I have to say and, and still do have contact with her because um, we're still going through the process we're not quite out the other side yet but it came up in panels it came up in the the par the prospective doctor's report um, and I had to show them kind of what what I do so I do still have I, I still have therapy just to kind of process my emotions because I I have I do have anxiety but I manage it really well now I practice mindfulness I don't have depression anymore mindfulness seems to have really kicked that but they I did have to demonstrate that I did have to um show all the time how I would manage and interestingly I have it's been the first few months of challenging as I would imagine for any parent but but I didn't have any post-adoption depression I was able to to really just allow that very difficult time to be there and get through it so so I felt like right into the panel saying take that <laughs> you know like I'm doing <laughs> I think that sometimes what we say uh, to people who've got anything in their own history, anything that deviates ever so slightly from the absolute straight and unbumpy road, you know, mm. um, that it is going to come up over and over yeah. again. So get ready for it too, because it does come up. And I think it isn't always framed as a source of strength and a source of learning. Or even if it's written up that way in the end, sometimes the questioning doesn't feel like it's being heard as a source of strength and overcoming things for myself it was multiple sclerosis and they just kept asking and asking and asking and asking beyond the point that I that it affected my life beyond the point that I even identified as having it to the point that I felt like I was kind of carrying this label that was almost bigger than me you know like a massive placard in front of me by then and I'm thinking this isn't how I see my MS this isn't how it affects me it's not it starts to feel like a bit of a fraud almost but it just came up and up and up and it was odd. And for me, again, if I'd been a bit more assertive and if I did it again, I would be much clearer at saying, yes, I was diagnosed. Yes, I have occasional effects. This is what those effects look like. Yes, it's a big bump in the road of a relationship to have one of you diagnosed with something significant, but we handled it really well and this is how we handled it. And I kind of would be more assertive about how it was perceived and received but I kind of wasn't I was sort of swept along in a process that I didn't understand and asked lots and lots and lots of questions kind of endlessly um it sounds a little bit like it came up like that for you and you so want to get through the panels don't you You just want them to say yes you can adopt that you feel like you've got to jump through hoops but I agree with you you know I think having had mental health issues is a massive strength in adoption because so many children are going to have mental health issues aren't they because of the things they've been through and and also being able to really know how to cope you know you've got those coping strategies in place you've had to have them you know and you will know with your ms how how what a good day looks like what a good bad day looks like how it best works for you and i think people forget that they're so 
focused on, or will this affect the child? That they don't think about what are the benefits for the child in know in knowing how you know how your own body works, in knowing how how to support and look after yourself. That's a massive thing to teach a child, I think. But yeah, like you. Yeah, no, I agree completely. What we're trying to say now to social workers and stuff is that they've really Scott starts kind of writing this stuff up as strengths, and some of them are amazing at that. But one of the things that we sometimes hear is, oh, you know, why would you, if a child's already had a really difficult time, why would you put them in an LGBT plus household? Because it socially excludes them more. They're going to have to answer more questions. They could get bullied. Why would you kind of do that with a child who has already, in quotes, suffered so much? And and what we're trying to say to them is, that child is already different by virtue of adoption, different by virtue of their start in life, potentially different by virtue of trauma and potentially whatever else is going on for that child. In a sense, why wouldn't you put them in a household that's good at managing difference, that's good at being different and, you know, being authentically themselves and used to dealing with questions and stuff? Isn't that a really good place to put a child who is, by definition, going to be different to their peers? And I think people are really coming round to that and it are getting sort of more welcoming of stuff but again it's not across the board yet and it's not with all issues so lesbian and gay are a bit more accepted than they used to be a lot more accepted than they used to be but then when you add in mental health or disability or whatever else again you're back to this kind of hamster hamster Mm. wheel of questions that it's quite hard to feel like you're actually moving forwards Mm, I'm absolutely nodding furiously here (laughs) I have to say and you know we I think children by their nature are so accepting that when we went to youth club because our son really likes going to youth club which is again you think oh autistic child can't go near children he loves children he just doesn't know how to really interact in the best way with them um he gets really shy and anxious but he loves going but anyway he one of his friends was like has your son got two mummies and I was like yeah and he went oh he's really lucky and he's just like they don't care it's the adults that care yeah the kids are just quite happy to and and he'll go out and he'll go oh that person's got two daddies that one's got two mummies like me and we'll say we'll like look and think "Mm, I think they're probably just friends those two by the you know making a judgment (laughs) might be right or wrong but um, we go yeah yeah you know um and he's and and we're teaching him about gender at the moment and and non-binary and gender different genders and he's so accepting of that he came up the other day with um we were looking at pictures of alpacas as you do and he, he we were like what would you call this alpaca if it was yours he was like pizza and we were like oh pizza and he was like and we said rightly or wrongly would it be a hero would it be a shit he went no non-binary and it was just like such a proud moment that these yeah. things were teaching him he's really gra- grasping them we just have to be i think it's adults that place that you know kids are so open to everything and we just have to teach them that i think yeah i agree with you and also adults perhaps who are cisgender who are heterosexual who are white who are whatever who maybe haven't been the outsider much in their own lives i think sometimes they can think that being the outsider is is such an, an appalling and isolating experience but actually you know being lgbt plus or whatever other community somebody's part of there is strength in that there's joy in that and you know lots and lots of people say well I wouldn't change this I wouldn't I wouldn't take a pill and become part of the majority because actually there's real joy in my life and I love who I am and I love this journey that I've been on but again I think sometimes if people haven't had lived experience of being that thing then it can seem like it it is only a barrier not not a strength 
Yeah, do you know what? I've not even viewed it as that because I just don't see it. Uh, maybe I've been, I think I have been incredibly lucky, but I only see it as, a, as part of who I am. But I can imagine that if you are sort of heterosexual, cis, white, of which I am some of those things, but not all, I wonder whether it's harder sometimes because so many of our children are so different to the norm, let's say, I'm putting some speech quantum things around that. Yeah. But it must be very hard if that's your life. I'm so used to being, you know, having those stares of two women being different that I don't even notice it anymore. And so having a, a son who is totally his own individual self, it doesn't phase me a bit. And I think I think maybe that's one of the benefits that we have in the LGBTQ plus community that perhaps we're a bit more open to diversity, hopefully, and more open to thinking about being outside that 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 sort of standard box maybe I don't know what do you think yeah no I agree with that completely because I think we're used to being asked questions and again going back a little bit it's going back say 10 years 15 years it was really common to be asked a lot of questions about just your relationship just the very fact that you know for Jackie and I that we were two women and we were together you know really quite personal questions sometimes as well by virtual strangers you kind of get used to explaining your life occupying your space and finding your dignity sometimes in a world that doesn't want you to have any and again I'm going back a little bit on the same-sex couple thing for us but in other aspects that thing of somebody perceiving that they understand everything about you because they know one label and again I guess this touches on being autistic too is you know you've got that label of lesbian or disability or autistic or whatever it is and it's as if that is so defining of everything that there's no need for further information there's no nuance there's no anything and I think that as people who've kind of had experience of that we I guess get used to what the diversity is within those labels and within those experiences and you know we have a diversity of friends within those experiences and stuff and I don't know I I think that as a family we draw on that we draw on the fact that Jackie and I have experience of being different in lots of different ways and then when questions come up about our family or about adoption or about my children's needs or whatever it is, we're kind of used to dealing with questions and explaining things and protecting ourselves and I guess finding finding that dignity. I don't know. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. I think I think it is the fact that you just it's part of your life, isn't it? So so it doesn't it it doesn't seem different to then add another label in of autism you know we're just adding another one into the questions box and actually I would prefer that people you know the intrusive questions are outrageous aren't they but I would prefer that people say oh you know your son has a speech delay does that affect other things you know just things like just ask the question rather than look kind of give you a bit of a look and I'm not sure about that just be open and honest I wish everybody was more open and honest and I think those conversations would really help people yeah, I understand that. I think because, you know, questions can be intrusive, can't they? They can also be incredibly naive. But yeah, I'm personally with you that I would always prefer that somebody asked me because asking is usually a form of reaching out, even if it's naive, even if it's a question that has been widely answered and, you know, with information that's been available for 30 years. Still, it does kind of feel like when somebody asks genuinely that they are trying to connect in some way and trying to understand. And I guess for myself in all of these things, I have to believe that people can move on in their views and their attitudes because otherwise I couldn't do what I do and I couldn't live the life that I live. I kind of have to believe that the tide can turn and it has turned so much. But I guess that happens by people engaging. And so, no, I mean, I never mind if people ask 
those questions, even if they are a little bit cringy. Yeah, there are a few cringe questions, aren't there? And I suppose the thing is, we all have the right to say, and, and this is what I find hard, but I'm learning, sorry, that's private, because some people want to know your whole life, what, oh, what's happened to him? How has he got to you? That's not his our story to tell, and it's not their story to know. So I am getting quite good now at kind of deflecting things and changing subjects and, and saying, sorry, that's not something I can share with you. And, and, you know, that's something that we have to protect, isn't it, for our children as well. Yeah, their story of why they're adopted does yeah. seem to feel to some like public property and something that you would just share. And again, I think sometimes people don't think of what they're asking before they ask it. For me, I tend to answer it in really general terms. So I will say things like children are adopted because they can't stay with their birth family anymore. And that's it. Because it kind of feels socially, it feels like I've answered it, except I haven't actually answered it. They don't have any more useful or nosy information than they had. What do you say to people when they ask that? Well, I'm going to use that now. <laughs> I just I just say, you know, that he couldn't stay with his birth family. And he, he I do say kind of the general reason why but not in any detail but not to strangers I just sort of changed the subject really but I'm going to start I've stolen that now I'm going to start saying <laughs> I should have copyrighted yeah. it <laughs> so you said that one of your um one of the things that you do is you stay very much in the now about things and I know that you said that you're still in the process so um, I guess your child is placed but not yet legally adopted is that correct? That's right yeah we have had our first court hearing um, and so we're now waiting for a second one and hopefully that or the third one will be our final hearing and we'll be able to say he's formally adopted. And does that matter to you that part? It does in the sense that it means that all those people that we've had in our life for a very long time will be leaving in some sense, but we will we will need post-adoption support throughout the years, I think, and we have already, and, and that's one good thing about, I think, if people are considering children with additional diagnoses and they have them now, is that because you've already got that in place, you can ask for that support, that post-adoption support, and, and and sort of get that guaranteed or get that put in place before you go through the court process. That's definitely something I'd recommend is is, is identify what you think that child needs um, because, because it seems easier to get it at that point. So we will still have probably some involvement. But to me, I've been very lucky. He, I've bonded with him from about four days in and, you know, he he's my son through and through. So it doesn't, it's just a piece of paper in some sense, but it will be good to to have it finally there I think yeah I quite like that experience of regaining family privacy in mm. some sense mm. because yeah there are still professionals involved but it just felt different it kind of felt like the front door was closed as opposed to open so that they have to sort of ring the bell to come in that was the difference to me metaphorically I mean of course but just um that we had an expectation of privacy that didn't quite feel like it was there until that legal bit was done yeah no more reviews no more having you know we don't we don't make him fill the review form and we do it in a different way a roundabout way but yeah and and he can um I don't know if people know that the name can't change until that point so he wants his name to change his surname and so that's important to him so he will finally be able to officially use that name so for him it will be important I think as well we haven't gone into great detail about it because it would probably confuse and you know make him a bit more anxious about what's all the different the reasons why we're going back um again and again but um yeah i think absolutely the door will be shut and we'll probably be locked for a little while as well I suspect. <laughs> 
You don't have to keep your house so tidy either, which is really oh, that's it. Gosh, the t- yeah, we were actually adopted through lockdown, so we're so lucky because a lot of ours was online. So oh, I feel good. Like people who had to have every week to visit <laughs> clean the house, so you can just tidy up behind yeah. you. <laughs> that's what I do when I'm delivering training for work. It's like the bit on either side of me and behind is, is perfect. I even have a plant that I put strategically in camera <laughs> shots so that you know it looks artistic. And, um, but then the rest of the room can be just trashed, you know. So, oh, God, just please don't ask me to turn the camera. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, so I guess that next step is about getting all of that legal stuff done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then family life. Do you think you'll go again? Is there a child too in the pot? Well, I don't think so, but never say never. But I think one of the things that I've noticed from other people's families is that it's much, much harder with two. And I think when you, I think in hindsight, maybe we would have gone for siblings at the start, but um, we did discuss it. And and I think for our son's needs, it would probably have to be a very specific child that would meet, would be able to fit in with our family. And obviously they have their own set of needs. So I don't know. I'm not sure that we will, but you never know, do you? You never know what the future holds. Well, no, indeed. And what a lovely point to end. Um, I mean, thank you so much for joining me and for, um, you know, talking through your experience. And there are children who've got these additional diagnoses who are waiting for adopters to come forward. And so we really need people who, like yourselves, are willing to consider that. Can I just ask you before we finish um, for any advice that you would have for people who are thinking have perhaps heard this and thought, do you know what, maybe as we're looking, maybe we should consider children who've got additional needs. What would your advice be? I would say try and be as open as you can, because I do think there's a naivety for some adopters that taking a child on at birth with no additional needs at that point will will mean that they will have an easy ride. And from what I can see of people who have adopted early on without a diagnosis, it it isn't. So be as open as you can. Maybe maybe be really firm about what you really feel you can't deal with, but perhaps do some reading and around and, and discussion with other adopters about things that you think you could be open to and try and see beyond the labels because you know, if you can go to things like, I think, and I think we'll open up a bit more now, these adoption events, and you can meet the children. They're just not what they look like on a piece of paper. They're these amazing living, breathing beings. And our son brings me so much joy. I was saying to my my wife about, I was going to do the podcast, and she said, God, I don't think we've laughed as much since he's come along. He is just the funniest, most amazing kid. And had I have just looked at those labels and gone, oh, no, I'm not sure about that. That's going to be too hard. We would have missed out on so much. So I would just just say try and be as open minded as you can and 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 get get some help about understanding what it means for your life and, and for their life. I think that's really good advice. And I think that I would add to that. Talk to adults who have that diagnosis or that condition or that experience, because, you know, it's with a child it's your job to care for them so of course you're going to be thinking about what their care needs are and so on because that's your job as the parent but I think hearing from adults who are autistic adults who've got mental health issues adults who have got ADHD whatever the thing is suddenly you're hearing it from people who have um, you know an articulate perspective on what it actually means what it means for their life what it means for everything and I think hearing it sort of from the horse's mouth but from other adults as well is really useful that is such a good point actually because that also gives me hope as his mum that he has a bright future whatever that looks like you know it's not about it's not necessarily about academics but I see lots of people who are living good lives with diagnosis of all sorts and and it 
we, you know, it doesn't mean that it, there is no future. It, there's a bright future for hopefully all our children. That's absolutely lovely. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Joining me now is James from New Family Social, who has brought along some questions from our members. Hi, James. Thanks for joining me. Good afternoon. It's very nice to have you here. Um, So, James, you've got a couple of questions that have come through from members. What's the first one that you've got? Well, the first one's quite specific, and it's about around schooling and education. And it's how you know whether or not your local school is going to be able to cope with your child's needs. Oh, that's such a good question. Do you want to say a little bit about how you've approached that or how you've heard that other members have done that? Well, in terms of how we approached it, it was very much around listening to other local parents. It was about identifying and understanding what the schools in the area offered and how that related to to actually what my son needed. Now, I knew that my son coped with relatively small class sizes better. He would want to be in a classroom where he would maintain a static position in it, um, where there was a greater emphasis on pastoral care. And that wasn't necessarily the same in all of the local primaries. And certainly looking at the secondaries, it was what the schools could offer was very different. You could also get a sense when you talk to the SENCOs, uh, which are the special educational needs coordinators um, in the schools, how much experience they had, not just with children who've, who who may or may not have conditions like autism or ADHD, um, but also what their experience was like with children who'd been looked after or who just been or were currently in the care system, because obviously those are different needs as well. And then add on top of that what the school's reaction was if you were going into it as part of a same-sex couple who's got a child and if the school was slightly aghast and that can happen (laughs) then that's a pretty good indicator that you're not going to feel comfortable as a parent going into it and if you're not comfortable then it's highly unlikely that they're going to be able to work in a way with you and your child, that your child's going to come out of it feeling that it's been um, a positive experience. I think also it's useful looking at the forums on New Family Social just to see how other people who've been through the process have approached it in their local area. It may well be that there's one or two schools that um, that stand out uh, in your in your region that would ideally be the place for your child to go to and obviously if you've adopted rather than than fostered if you've adopted then your preference will usually get you a priority placement at a school because your child is still seen as a as a priority within the local authority yeah absolutely and I think one of the things that someone told me that really stuck with me is that the school that is in quotes best in the area so you know Ofsted outstanding stunning results and so on isn't necessarily the best for a child with complex needs or a difficult start in life. Because if the reason that school is doing so well is that the children are, you know, have fairly straightforward lives, extremely supportive families, have not really had the bumps in the road that your child have had. If those children largely don't have those additional needs, are behaviourally very compliant and so on, 
then if you put a child in whose background is complex and who at different stages in their life will hit those bumps in the road, it may be that that school is not at all practiced at dealing with those children. And so sometimes it can be the school that on paper isn't, in quotes, the best school locally, but actually a school that is really good at children with diverse needs, diverse backgrounds, different family lives and so on, because the staff in that school will be really practiced and really skilled at managing and working with to get the best out of those kids. I've, I've personally found that piece of information really valuable. Yes, and I think you can tell a lot from the school just by having simple conversations with um, with school staff and sounding out. It's I mean, there, there's the traditional exercises of how will you approach Father's Day if you are a woman in a relationship with another woman? <laughs> because obviously Father's Day is not going to be something that your child is necessarily going to want to participate in. Obviously, it can be reframed, and that's how a lot of schools approach it. But if the school hasn't thought through what that's going to look like for your child when they're in that position, then that's going to be quite awkward. And the one thing that your child doesn't need to feel when they're at school is different from all the other children because they've got enough going on in their background that will make them feel slightly different to their peers as it is. Yeah, and I think how the school seems to cope with things like diversity is quite a good indicator. And I think also a sense of whether the school seems to like the children who've got additional needs and stuff. Are they viewed as a problem or are they viewed as an asset to the school, albeit with some additional needs to be met? And I think a lot of that is on feeling, isn't it? You know, that's not a report you're going to read, but it is a gut feeling that you might get as you go around. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's you can pick up a lot from your conversations with the with the school staff. And if your gut instinct is telling you that something's going to be something's not quite sitting right, then it's a good idea to trust that and, and investigate it to see to try and identify exactly what's not sitting quite right with you. Because people like people, but if you're not connecting with the people who are going to be providing the ultimate first line support for your child when your child becomes distressed then it's probably not going to work positively for you in the long term that's great james thank you and you brought another question with you i do the second question that um, our members have sent into us um, is around when you are considering children that you're looking at adopting or fostering how do you rule yourself into considering children with particular traits or those children who might be seen as priorities because your local authority can't find suitable placements for them. So specifically, how do you know whether you're best placed to parent a child who is older or possibly a child who's part of a sibling group or who has mental health issues or, or neurodivergence, such as an, a condition like ADHD or if it's an autistic child, for instance? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, obviously, as part of the assessment, you are given a list and asked to comment on your ability to parent or care for children with a whole variety of conditions. But I think it's really difficult to know because unless you happen to have knowledge, you know, first-hand experience of those conditions, perhaps through your own background or through um, immediate friends and family and so on, I think it's really hard to know what all of those things mean. And I think it was one of the things that came up um, as I was talking to our guests was, 
unless you have that specialist knowledge, you either have to go and do a fair bit of research or I think there is a bit of a temptation to say no. I don't know how you found it when you were doing that bit. To be honest, when I was completing those forms, I I thought it was probably best to underestimate anything I could do. So rule myself out in many scenarios rather than rule myself in. And as it turned out, I can parent a child who's got various neurodivergence issues. But I didn't think that I would be able to at the time. And even though my son was older when we went through the process, his conditions hadn't been, he hadn't received the diagnoses that, that he's now got. And I think until you're in it and doing it, you won't know whether or not you're able to to parent that child. I think you can talk to people who have done it. I think you can listen to all the talks that you like online. But until you're actually doing it, you've got no way of knowing whether or not you can do it. So it's far better to approach it pragmatically and say, this is something I absolutely can't do. And be quite strict with yourself on those areas where you don't think you can provide the parenting a child needs, then to put yourself forward in the hope that long term you're actually going to be able to do it. And I'm thinking specifically around if you're looking at children who've had extremely severe physical or sexual abuse, whether or not that's something you think you can cope with, unless there's something in your background that makes you think that that's an area of life you're going to be able to 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 meet the needs of there's a good chance you won't be able to it's interesting though james because it's like you know those examples actually so when jackie and i filled that in we said yes to a child who had been sexually abused that was on our yes list because we had professional background touching on that field and although we knew that that would be a a difficult thing we had uh, immediate friends who had had that experience as children and so on and we'd worked in um, domestic abuse organizations and so on where sexual abuse was commonly talked about and so on so we did feel that we could sort of dial up if you like the the resources both emotional and practical to deal with that but we said no to some other things that perhaps would be on other people's yes list having said that though of course we said no to some stuff and we were talking about neurodivergence. Honestly, I didn't know masses about that. I didn't know that I knew anyone who was neurodivergent, although probably I did. And I think, you know, I'm going back a decade. I think perhaps things were less visible then. Now, actually, in my immediate family, two of the people here aren't neurodivergent now. We now know and are now diagnosed. And so actually from having said I think that's outside my comfort zone. I don't know enough about it, so probably that's a no. Actually, neurodivergence has become a massive part of my life, and here we are in it, you know? And like you're saying, you're now in something that you initially, your gut feeling was probably no to. Yes, I think some, it wasn't around I didn't want to parent somebody who is neurodivergent. It was more that I just didn't have the skill. I wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> And uh, there, are, there are still some days when that's the case. Have you got the skills now, James? Are you still waiting? Yet? I think 
I think arguably I've got the skills. <laughs> Maybe we need to drag our kids in and ask if they think we've got the skills. I expect them to be a different write-up. <laughs> yes, I, I quite like myself. I don't need to hear a, a shopping list of what I do wrong <laughs> in the parenting department. I think the I think also it's worth remembering that neurodivergence, if if your child has more than one neurodivergence condition that the two that the two conditions won't necessarily work in tandem with each other or work nicely for the child and that sometimes one condition will mask another and you've got to if you're an adoptive parent getting the support that you need is absolutely key because once you have signed the adoption order then the focus is on post adoption support and it becomes a, it, it can become more of a challenge to get what you need and once you are looking for uh, mental health type support for a child you have to be you have to develop fairly sharp elbows and an attitude of my child needs support and this is what i'm going to do to get it and that isn't something that going through the assessment process you necessarily have to have developed. I always liken it to being if you're going through the assessment process, it's like managing a project. You know what the timelines look like, you know what is required of you from beginning to end. Once you are in post adoption support, you have to become more of a demanding consumer, is probably the best way of putting it, just so that you can get what you need and just so that you can get what your child needs. And that's really the key. Your child, if they are learning to live with autism or whether it's ADHD or whether it's a mental health issue like anxiety or depression, they they need to learn how to, to live with those. But at the same time, they're still going through school and they still need your help. And it's no good relying necessarily on the techniques that work for you because they won't necessarily work for your child. And the more reading that you do, the more rewarding it you'll find it. Because actually, because actually, I read so many books on on neurodivergence that it really did help inform how I how I approached some of the situations that would crop up day in day out, week after week, and try and diffuse them so that I could understand why why simple situations just escalated into nuclear war within about seven minutes and I had no idea I didn't know what I was doing wrong yeah yeah absolutely and you know as far as I know I'm neurotypical I'm now living with two people who are not and I think what was really helpful for me was meeting adults who were open about being autistic or about having ADHD or whatever because Honestly, I'd sort of lived in that privilege bubble where you don't have to know because it hadn't touched me. I think I'm reasonably socially aware in my defence, but but I guess until something sort of touches you, you don't always know the nuance. But now, knowing people who are... Um, I don't want to say there are never problems because of course there are problems of course there are challenges but actually it's been really good to see adults say this is my experience this is what works for me this is what's really triggering and see that actually some of those things are simply about how rigid we are as a society and how rigid our systems were that don't allow for that diversity that neurodiversity Mm. that all of us are on that spectrum somewhere you know and that those people who are neurodivergent and I include two of my own family in that 
sometimes it is just about understanding this is a can't thing. They can't do this thing. It's not a won't thing. Mm. So getting wound up about it isn't going to help. You might as well ask them to fly around the room while accompanying that, accomplishing that task because it isn't going to happen in that way. Yeah. And that once you kind of get more flexible and say it could happen in this way or maybe it doesn't need to happen or maybe later would be okay or maybe we count it down in a different way or whatever it is, it actually, it was okay. Yes, I think for for me just learning that asking someone to do something unless I broke it down into very specific instructions and one instruction then the task gets completed then you are give another instruction and different task gets completed was a totally different way of approaching things but it worked so much better and I would never have known that if I hadn't done background reading and it's it's quite an interesting approach to take and certainly when you're thinking through things things with older children such as doing homework not all children can do homework at home and that's and it isn't because there's a lack of willingness it's because in some cases the perception is home is where you do things at home so you know that's where you go to talk to your parents where you do fun things and school is where all schoolwork should be carried out and that perception is not going to change. So asking my son to do homework at home, it's not going to happen. And that's not a battle that I'm going to have because it's it's fighting against the understanding of what homework is and trying to explain it in any way that doesn't meet his understanding of what homework is does not work. So you just end up accepting homework will not get done at home. It will be done at school. And that is the way forward, because home should be a place of happiness and having fights about homework at home (laughs) means that the one place where there should be happiness and contentment is not going to be there. So we have to work within the, the, the neurodivergence and the conditions and do the homework elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I I understand that completely. It's remove the obstacle, isn't it? Stop stop beating yeah. your head against the obstacle. Remove the obstacle. There we go. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think we've strayed from the question somewhat. I suggest I sense you and I should probably do a podcast about um, neurodivergence and possibly pull in some adults who are neurodivergent mm. to talk about what they wish they'd had from their parents and carers, you know, because I think that will be really fascinating. Someone trying to get it right is to hear from people who experienced it from the other side to say, you know, this is what it was like um but james thank you um again so much for joining me and bringing along the questions and uh, it's been very nice to chat to you and to you speak soon i'd like to thank my guest today emily and also the listeners who sent in their questions via the contact form on our website if you enjoyed this podcast please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends follow us on twitter at lgbt adopt foster and on facebook search new family social all one word visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next week with more guests and more tea.